This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the final mini medical school. I'm excited that everyone's here tonight. First, I would like to introduce Sandra Amet. She's the author of Why Diets Make Us Fat, The Unintended Consequences of Our Obsession with Weight Loss. It's a great book. You should go and go and get it. Uh, she also co-authored two popular neuroscience books with Sam Wang. Welcome to Your Brain was named Young Adult Science Book of the Year by the American Association for the Advancement of Science and has been translated into 20 languages. Welcome to Your Child's Brain in 2011 was published in 12 languages. Uh, she received her undergraduate degrees in biophysics from Johns Hopkins University and her doctorate at neuroscience, in neuroscience from the University of Rochester. After four years of research at Yale University, she joined Nature Neuroscience, a leading scientific journal in the field of brain research at its founding in 1998, and she was the editor-in-chief from 2003 to 2008. I'm thrilled to welcome her and will also tell you that she's a very good hiker. I've tried to keep up with her before. It's a challenge, and she has a lovely puppy, um, but I'm thrilled to welcome her. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Ashley. So I want to start by introducing you to Dennis Asbury. In 1997, he lost over 120 pounds by cutting calories and exercising an outlandish amount. And if I were here to deliver a Weight Watchers commercial, that would be the end of the story, the before and the after. But as many of us have discovered, after the after, there's more after. <laughs> and for Dennis, that was uh, gaining all that weight back. In, so he, he lost the weight originally for his first daughter's wedding. That next picture is from his second daughter's wedding. <laughs> And uh, you may have seen those little disclaimers at the bottom of the Weight Watchers ads that say results not typical. So the result that's not typical was Dennis's original weight loss. The result that was typical is his regain. Now, Dennis is very far from typical. Um, first of all, he defied odds of about um, 1 in 1,200 to lose over 100 pounds the first time. And then he did it again after he retired. So we're talking about somebody who has just an unbelievable amount of willpower. He, he managed to lose a grand total of about 250 pounds over the course of these two diets. And the way he described it to me was that he was not ever doing anything else. He was either strategizing about eating, how could he fit his allowed calories into the day in a way that would allow him to function, that he wouldn't be so desperately starving that he couldn't 
deal with the rest of his life, or he was exercising. Those were the, those were the only two things he was doing. And eventually that got to be too much. And for a while he alternated between binging and starving. And gradually, again, started gaining the weight back. And uh, that, unfortunately, is a very typical weight loss story. I'm sure a lot of you know from personal experience how hard it is to lose weight and how hard it is to keep that weight off after you've lost it, if not for yourself, then for someone else. And I want to tell you that when they speak to each other in private, the members of the diet industry agree. So this is a quote from a marketing report written by a, a diet industry group for diet marketers. And this is basically their business plan, that you should have a lifetime membership to Weight Watchers. Okay? They, they know that they're selling a product that doesn't work. If you look in the medical literature, uh, there was a meta-analysis of diet studies done by Tracy Mann and her colleagues, and what they found, looking at a whole bunch of different studies, was that on average, five years after beginning a diet, one person out of ten was thinner, five of them were back to their original weight, and four had gained weight. There have been over a dozen studies that have followed people over time after a diet, and they all find that more people end up gaining weight years after a diet than end up thinner, um, even looking out as far as 15 years. So I think everybody sort of knows that, but that first rush, the first six months of a diet, when you're losing all this weight is really seductive to us. It's easy to blind yourself to the fact that you've done this two or three or 10 or 20 times before and you've never been able to sustain it. So if you, if you choose to go on a diet, um, I want to show you the results of a study that is basically the best medical science can do. This is the look-ahead study, and they took more than 5,000 people who were diabetic and either overweight or obese and put them on an incredibly intensive diet with an unbelievable amount of support. They had group classes, they had individual consults, they had physical activity specialists, they had nutritionists, they had psychologists, they specifically identified individual barriers to weight loss and strategized with people for how to overcome it. They had over 300 contacts each with professionals over the 10 years of this study. And at the end of it, the average person in the intensive diet group had lost 5.7 pounds more than the average person in the control group. 
um, about a quarter of them had lost 10% of their body weight and kept it off, which is the gold standard in modern medicine for diets. And just about exactly the same number had gained weight over the course of the study. And the rest of them were pretty much where they'd been to begin with. So this is the best we've got. And it's pretty underwhelming, (laughs) at least in my opinion. So why is it so hard to keep weight off? The answer to that is not in your stomach, but in your brain. And I'd like to introduce you to the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus, which basically serves as a a thermostat to regulate weight. And so you know what happens with your house's thermostat if you leave the setting alone and you decide that you want to cool the house down by opening a window, say, in the winter. Uh, Anybody who's ever lived in a New York apartment where the landlord doesn't allow you to control the setting for the heat might be familiar with this process already. But what typically happens is that the place cools off for a while and then heater kicks on because the thermostat says to itself, this place is not at the correct temperature. We better pour some more heat in. Something very, very similar happens in your brain when you lose weight. Uh, everybody has a uh, what's popularly called a set point. Uh, scientists call it the defended range because that's a little more accurate. It's for most people somewhere in the vicinity of a, a range of 10 to 15 pounds where your body is comfortable. And if you get above that, your body will try to get you, your brain will try to get you back down for a while, kind of (laughs) half-heartedly. If you get below that range, though, your brain will try to get you back up to it intensely and relentlessly. And that is the solution that evolution put together over hundreds of thousands or millions of years. You know, every mammal has this mechanism to solve a problem that we no longer have, the ever-present scarcity of food. Because if you think about it, in in a hunter-gatherer tribe, for example, your odds of weighing 500 pounds are pretty slim. (laughs) On the other hand, your odds of starving to death are not negligible. And so your brain puts a lot more energy into making sure that you're not starving to death. And unfortunately, it doesn't really seem to take into account where you're starting from in that process. Um, For most people, you know, you, you probably know what weight it is that you can maintain comfortably, what weight it is that you always go back to after you've been on a diet. Um... If you've had that experience, that is probably your defended range. So when you, how how does the brain do this? Basically, this is the master controller that changes a whole bunch of physiological factors. You don't have to memorize this. There won't be a quiz. (laughs) But you can see that this is 
this is controlling a bunch of hormone and neurotransmitter systems that basically have two major aims. Increase energy storage, which is to say reduce the amount of energy that you burn, and particularly, it turns out, reduce the amount of energy that you burn through physical activity. Now, that's great if you're a hunter-gatherer who's having trouble finding food. You, you actually become a Prius, and you get more miles per gallon <laughs> from the food so that you can go farther looking for more. It's not so great if you're going to the gym trying to burn 500 calories. And then the other effect is to increase your appetite and increase food intake. And some recent work has actually suggested that that effect is larger than the effect on metabolism. So um, everybody likes to think about the metabolism because it really feels like something you couldn't possibly help. It's definitely not your fault. <laughs> but... Uh, People eat more without even realizing it, too, and uh, sometimes quite a lot more. This is my favorite study on the results of uh, dieting on the metabolism. This is a, a study of the Biggest Loser TV show, and the researchers got the producers to give them the names of the contestants before the show started so that they were able to put them into a fancy machine and get a baseline metabolism rate measurement on them, and then to go to get one again right after they had lost an average of 129 pounds on the show, and then again six years later. And what you can see over on the right there is that even after they had gained back on average 70% of the weight that they had lost, their metabolisms were all still significantly suppressed. And the typical contestant six years later was burning 500 fewer calories than expected for someone of their size and body composition. So that's basically an entire meal that you have to skip just because you're below your defended weight range compared to somebody who looks exactly like you but is within their defended weight range. Dieting has a variety of uh, psychological effects that are not good for you also. I already mentioned the tendency to uh, become fatter, but also... There's a strong risk, especially with repeated dieting for the development of eating disorders, in, including binge eating, which is probably at least some of the mechanism behind the weight gain that I mentioned. And the other thing that's kind of more subtle but really interesting to me is that when you diet, you are teaching yourself to eat according to rules. You're teaching yourself to eat according to somebody else's plan. And people who do that get out of touch with their bodies. They have trouble telling when they're hungry. And if you have trouble telling when you're hungry, you're going to have trouble telling when you're full. They frequently eat when they're not hungry. They eat for emotional reasons. They eat for social reasons. They eat just because somebody put some food on the table in front of them. So these, these are the typical psychological characteristics of frequent dieters. And it's, it all comes back to the idea that somebody else should be telling you what to eat. 
So this probably sounds pretty depressing so far. Um, this is where the good news part starts. Your weight is not going to kill you. Um, everybody thinks that being heavy is the worst possible thing that can happen to a person. Um, you actually are more likely to die of low fitness, of loneliness. There's a, there's a stronger statistical association of mortality with loneliness than with obesity, with poverty, with smoking, and with high blood pressure. All of those things are more deadly taken in isolation than obesity. Now, the problem is that these things typically don't happen in isolation. And in particular, there's a pretty strong correlation between obesity and low fitness. So this is just the basic mortality rate, the, the probability of death. Obviously, I, I hate saying that because obviously the probability of death is 100%. <laughs> but... What that, what that actually means is the probability of death within the period of the study, okay? <laughs> within a particular set of years. And you can see that, especially as people get older, into their 60s and 70s, um, there is no mortality risk whatsoever associated with being in the overweight range. And you, you actually have to get pretty far into the obese range before you even get to the point where being obese is as dangerous as being at the low end of normal weight. So there's some argument based on curves like these that what we call the normal overweight and obese ranges are not in the right place. Uh, now, the, the purpose of the look-ahead study that I mentioned was actually not to prove that we could make people lose weight. It was to prove that losing weight would improve health and particularly cut the risk of death from cardiac events. Here are the results of that study. These are the same people whose weight loss I showed you earlier. And this study was ended um, based on a lovely statistical method called the futility analysis <laughs> that predicted that they would never find any difference between these two groups after 9.8 years. They hadn't found any at all. Okay. Um, there are several studies like this. Basically, nobody has ever shown that weight loss correlates with decreased mortality. Obviously, that's kind of a tricky thing to do. This is probably the most scientifically serious effort that's ever been made. I'll show you one more that I like because it separates out the people in the different weight categories. And this was a study in Norway that just followed people over 30 years in their normal life. And what it found was that losing weight increased mortality in people who were started in the normal weight range. And weight made no difference statistically whether people gained, lost, or stayed the same in the uh, overweight and obese ranges. And gaining weight didn't have a statistically significant effect in the normal weight people either. I'm going to skim over this slide real quick. But basically, this is the one that the epidemiology that shows fit versus unfit. If you just look at the blue bars, 
And what you can see is that relative to people who are normal weight and fit, people who are overweight and fit, the left-hand bar in both cases, or obese and fit, have very little additional mortality. It's about 10% increase. It wasn't in this study statistically significant. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. It doesn't really matter. It's small either way. But if you look at the people who are unfit, and in this study what that meant specifically was the people who were in the lowest 20% on fitness. Okay, so what I'm calling fit is basically everybody who ever gets up off the couch. (laughs) And that group of people, that lowest 20%, carry the vast majority of the mortality that's associated with overweight and obesity. So I want to show you one more study real quick. This just was an epidemiology study that asked people about four healthy habits. Did they eat five servings of fruits and vegetables a day? Did they exercise at least three times a week? Did they not smoke? Did they drink less than two glasses of alcohol per day. And normal weight, you can see basically that the more healthy habits people had, the better off they were in terms of their risk of death. Same thing in the overweight group, same thing in the obese group, but here it becomes very clear that the problem is not obesity itself, but the correlation of obesity with bad lifestyle habits. Because if you look just at the people with four healthy habits, there's no difference based on weight. So uh, these are the facts. These are the habits. And I want to close with a quote from a doctor of public health at Harvard who has been really famous for insisting that everybody needs to lose weight. And even he admits that you can substantially decrease your risk of death and improve your health by adopting healthy lifestyle habits. So my basic position, you know, you, these are, I'll, I'll give you the facts. You can do what you want with them. My personal interpretation is that we should, we're grabbing this problem completely by the wrong end. We're insisting that everybody has to do the very hardest thing that helps the least. (laughs) Okay? Does that make any sense? How about we start by getting everybody to exercise for half an hour a day before we even begin to ask them what they weigh? How about we get people to eat some more vegetables before we ask them what they weigh? How about we take hold of this problem from the end that we can do something about? You know, there, there's nothing in your brain fighting against you going to, for a walk for half an hour. And if there is, you only have to fight it for half an hour. <laughs> Right? If you're on a diet, you have to fight it 24 hours a day. All right. So that's my pitch. That's why you should never go on a diet. And now I'm going to hand over to my co-speaker, who's going to tell you what to do instead.
while she's at setting up, I will also say that you should look for Sandra's TED Talk because it's really, really good. Um, but next, I want to introduce Daria Rose. She's the author of Foodist Using Real Food and Real Science to Lose Weight Without Dieting. And this is her book, and it's really great. You should go buy it. Um, she's the creator of the award-winning blog Summer Tomato, one of Time's top 50 websites. And she's also the host of the Foodist podcast, which we look forward to returning soon. It's a really good podcast. You should subscribe to that. She received her doctorate in neuroscience from UCSF and has a bachelor's degree in molecular and cell biology from UC Berkeley. Daria's unique brain-based approach to food, health, and weight loss teaches us not just what healthy eating looks like, but how to actually train... Ugh actually change your behavior so that you can stop wishing for and actually make meaningful progress toward healthier living. Daria spends most of her time thinking and writing about food, health, and science. She eats amazing things daily and hasn't even considered going on a diet since 2007. So please welcome Daria Rose. Hi, guys, and thank you, Sandra. Um, so you guys are all convinced you don't need to diet, right? Yeah. Cool, because the first part of my talk is usually that, but I didn't have to do it. It's so awesome, and uh, it's absolutely true, and um, I know this from I'm digging through the science, but also from experience. So I grew up in like the early 90s. Do you guys remember Baywatch? So um, it was the 80s and 90s, and my mom, I lived in Southern California, and my mom was like a chronic dieter. She did every single diet. And I, at 11 years old, uh, once came into the kitchen in the morning, and she was making a slim fast milkshake. And when you're 11 and your mom's making a chocolate milkshake for breakfast, that sounds like the coolest thing ever. And so... Like the rest is history. It's it's horrible. I started dieting when I was eleven. From there, after that, I started learning self consciousness and actually intentionally dieting. And um, I did this for fifteen years, and until I and I, I'm also one of those people with amazing willpower. I I went years without uh, eating any fat. I went years without eating any carbs. I have run three marathons. And um, fun fact, I. At my peak weight when I was a dieter, um, I didn't hit that weight again until I was nine and a half pre- months pregnant with my first baby, <laughs> so my only baby, which I just had in October <laughs> or November. Um, so in October, I was uh, like 10 months pregnant, and that was when I was finally like, wow, I'm finally the most I've ever weighed. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so I started doing that research um, on my own in graduate school because I was so fed up with dieting because I was good at it and it wasn't working. And so I've discovered this whole body of literature that says that I shouldn't diet. So basically what I did was I stopped dieting. I started focusing on real food and healthy behaviors. I started exercising like a normal person and not an insane person because I used to work out like two hours a day. So I cut it down to like you know, 45 minutes to an hour, five days a week. Got my weekends back because I stopped long running. And um, I proceeded to lose 15 pounds, <laughs> eating more than I felt like I'd ever eaten. And guess what? Eating food that actually tastes good. Have you ever eaten diet food? It's like horrible. So um, I, dis- I-, I was so shocked that this actually worked that I-, I started a website called Summer Tomato while I was in grad school. And I really just felt like I needed to tell people this story. And it was really popular. And by the, so by the time I graduated, I was like writing a book and had a new career. So I, I, I left science to do this. This is how powerful it was for me. 
Um, since then, I've been talking to thousands of people online about this issue, and I have come. To, I've come to see that really most people. It's not the knowledge. So at first I thought, well, I need to tell people, like, you need to eat vegetables and you need to do all the things Sandra just said. You need to exercise and you, you need to focus on these healthy behaviors. But turns out most people can't do that. Like, that's really hard. And so as I spoke with people, I started hearing what the real problems are with trying to get healthy. So... To let me know if any of these sound familiar. Who's too busy to work <laughs> to do this stuff, right? Like, or um, I would hear things like, "It's it's too expensive. Fresh foods and vegetables are way too expensive. Um, I'm just too tired. I can't do it. Uh, I hate vegetables. I can't I can't eat healthy. Um, Self talk. I don't have the willpower. I don't have the discipline. It's not. It can't be done. Or social reasons. Everybody else does it. I can't change. Or my family won't do it, <laughs> the, biggest, the biggest one of all. So, but at the end of the day, there are people who are more busy than you, have less time than you, have less money than you, and can still eat healthy and do these healthy behaviors. So really, at the end of the day, it's an issue of psychology and not of nutrition. And so what's important then is focusing on your brain. Because as Sandra explained, you need to get these behaviors down. You know, if you, if you stop thinking about the diet, stop thinking about the number on the scale, at the end of the day, you just need to do the things that make you healthy. Some people will lose weight. You can probably get to the bottom of your defended range. Um, and, or at least, you know, near there, you can lose a few pounds. I lost weight. And you lost weight too, right, when you started doing it? You, you do lose weight. You might not lose 150 pounds, but you will feel so much better, and you will look better. You will be healthier. And that is, should become the goal. But... For one of the reasons the diets fail, you can't rely on willpower. Right? You can't rely on willpower to do these things. It's too hard because it, a diet, like she said, is 24 hours a day. So instead, I propose we focus on habits. And today I'm going to describe to you uh, how to do that. So the habits are the diet antidote. So for starters, 90% of the food choices you'll already make are habit-based. The cool thing about habits is once they're formed, they happen automatically. You don't have to think about them. That's what a habit is. And they don't require willpower once they're formed. Um, habits are lasting. Good habits are just as hard to break as bad ones. When I can't go to the gym for several days in a row, I go absolutely crazy. And you think that fitness people are just a different breed, but that's not true. Once you start to really find a physical activity you love, it's addicting. You really want to keep doing it, not because you have to and not because you want to lose weight. And habits are brilliant because they evoke the 80-20 principle, which means that if you're doing the right thing most of the time, what you do occasionally doesn't matter so much. So if it's your birthday, if it's your anniversary, you can go have a glass of champagne and a slice of cake, and you don't have to feel bad about it. <laughs> So quick description of how habits work. So what distinguishes a habit from a regular, uh, any other action that you take, any other behavior, is that it's got three components. One is the cue or trigger, which is the thing that initiates the action. Then you have the action that follows. And then there's always a reward at the end. And the reward is the special part because what it does is it tells your brain, keep doing that. 
it reinforces that cue. And so it, the reward and the cue are paired, and what they do is they initiate the action. Does that make sense? So that reinforcement is what, what's very powerful in the habit loop. And, um, and you can read all about this. This is a wonderful book called uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, and he describes the golden rule of habit change, which is pairing the same trigger with the same reward and just scripting a new action in the middle. So rather than trying to use willpower, you reshape your habits and then healthiness will follow. And this typically takes, I mean, there's a lot of rumors out there about how long it takes to form a new habit. It really depends on the habit and on you. But um, typically two weeks to six months is, is your typical range for forming new habits. So let's dig into this a bit more because uh, people get all sorts of messed up when I start talking about this. So um, let's talk about the reward. So there's a lot of misconceptions about what is rewarding, believe it or not. So first of all, the reward for a habit, and we're specifically talking about forming habits, the reward for a habit has to be directly associated with the action. So every time I go for a run, I'm going to put money in my vacation fund. Mm Mm-mm. That's not going to cut it. You have to enjoy the thing. You have to run to see somebody you really like. You have to, there has to be an intrinsic reward within the action or that the action leads to for it to actually, for you to actually not hate the thing you're doing. You have to actually like the thing you're doing. The reward must be immediate, not distant, like my vacation, you know, or, you know, losing. 10 pounds or fitting into these clothes. It needs to be now. And it must be positive. It can't just be neutral. It can't just be, this isn't so bad. It has to be a really good feeling. And rewards can be very, very subtle. So I just want to give you a little example of how subtle a reward can be. So one of the things I teach is mindful eating. And one of the things I encourage as part of mindful eating is to chew. A lot of people don't chew. You'd be shocked. You probably don't. Um, And when I was, I I tried to teach myself mindful eating for, God, years. And I did so many different things. I would would try counting my chews and this and that. Finally, I did develop a mindful eating habit, and I'll tell you how I did that shortly. But it's funny. Sometimes I get distracted, and and I start to eat unmindfully again. And what now reminds me that I am not eating mindfully is I will partially chew my food and then swallow it. And I notice how really uncomfortable it is to swallow un, like partially chewed food now. And it's really uncomfortable. And I'm like, and I, I chew more. Like that, the reward is soft food. Like it's really confusing, right? But it's really subtle. And that worked better than any promise of weight loss or anything else that I was trying to accomplish from mindful eating. So, so rewards, and, like this whole thing is, is all happening in your mind and it's very subtle. So you have to be... You have to almost be a scientist of yourself and really study, you know, what is going on in you to make you feel, act, and do certain things. So things that aren't rewards. (laughs) Eating healthy is not a reward. Like if you tell yourself you're going to eat healthy, well, actually, I'll take that back. It's not a reward for nine out of ten people. (laughs) 10% of people actually identify as healthy eaters and like it. And I'm one of those people now. I've convinced myself that I've put myself in that camp now. But most people, if eating healthy is not a reward. Uh, Most people kind of want to lower disease risk, but not enough to not eat the chocolate. And being a healthy size is also, you know, it's just, it's too 
it's too abstract and not very fun. It's just not sexy enough. So these are not rewards. These never work for forming habits. So um, what things that do work? Physical pleasure, like I said, and these works on all these work on very specific pathways in the brain: the adrenaline, dopamine, and serotonin system. Um, psychological pleasure, like socializing, giving, collaborating, more serotonin, and doing things faster. We actually are we like to save energy as humans. So if you can do something easier, faster, simpler, and you can be a little bit more lazy, your brain loves that. On the flip side, let's talk about triggers. So. Triggers are a reminder to start the task. Um, they can be either cognitive, like a thought you have or an emotion you have, or they can be environmental. You see something and you think, oh, right, I'm supposed to do this. They must be part, to be a, a, an effective habit for a health, a health habit, it's going to need to be a part of your normal routine. You can't just hope, you can't set an alarm on your phone and hope to remember to do something. If, it, it has to be, you have to work out on your way home from work. You know, it has to be something like that. And it's, it's best if the, if the trigger is immediately followed by an exi- or follows an existing habit, like I said. Like if you already have the habit of going to work, you already have the habit of, you know, you already have the habit of going to bed, so you brush your teeth. You know, so you, you, you pair habits together, and that way they always get done. So what should you, what habits should you create? So uh, eat healthy is kind of vague, right? We need you to be very specific about which behaviors you're going to target. Um, Also, you want to choose high-impact habits. So, you know, slightly cutting down the number of calories of your breakfast, eh, you know, like choosing decaf over regular coffee. I mean, these things are very small. Um, Pick something big, like cook dinner at home. Like, that's a big one. You know, some stuff you do five days a week, three meals a day, or those are the big ones. You want, and those are going to have the biggest impact versus, like, something very small that you aren't, that isn't going to have a lot. And, and you want it to be clear that you actually succeeded. You want, it to, you want to have a black and white goal. Like, did I do this? Yeah. Like, eh, kind of. That's not good. So you definitely want to make sure that um, those goals are clear. And it's even better if they're easy to measure and track so that you can see the progress that you're making. A few examples um, for just eating breakfast. You know, be specific. What are you going to eat for breakfast? If you want to exercise daily, you want say you want to get 10,000 steps and wear your Fitbit. Um, eating mindfully, choose one mindful meal to eat a day. Don't vaguely try to eat mindfully. Um, eat more vegetables. Eat something green. Lunch and dinner. Great habit. Um, cook at home. Be specific. When? What days are you going to cook? Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So this solves real problems. It cuts down on your need of limited willpower. So you do need to use a little bit of willpower to form habits, and I'll get into that shortly. But once you do, then they're done. It's great. And then you don't have to be on a diet 24-7. One of the best things you can do is identify what I call your home court habits for the greatest impact. And I'll go into this uh, shortly. Um, But um, basically what your home court habits are are a set of habits that you know that you need from experience to be healthy. So for me, that means cooking vegetables regularly, which also means going to the grocery store. Uh, It means walking at least 10,000 steps a day. It means doing strength training three to four days a week. You know, it's, it's, I have a a list of them and yours don't have to be mine, (laughs) but you need them. And, you know, and they should be in the general categories of eating more vegetables, eating more healthy food and being more active. 
it's also cool because this is you can personalize it. Like I said, it doesn't. Your habits don't have to be mine. You, you don't. There's no prescription. You can do what you like. In fact, you have to because if it's not rewarding, then you won't stick with it. So you might not like what I like, and so it won't become a habit. So whatever makes your life awesome. And, and, good, and healthy habits actually do make your life awesome because you feel so great when you do them. So like I was saying, these are some of my home court habits. Um, eating raspberries off my fingers is really more of a morning thing, but yeah. <laughs> anytime with a hat is good. Um, so these are, these are just some habits that I recommend would help almost anyone eat, uh, be healthier. Two of these habits monitoring and mindfulness. I actually call them meta habits. So they're important because they help keep your other habits in line. So I'm going to go into, I'm going to go into a little bit more depth in, in monitoring and mindfulness because they're uh, especially important. So mon- self-monitoring is um, well-established to be to help you stick with habits. And it's especially important at the beginning of your habits when you're first starting to form them. So it's been shown that monitoring your food intake, exercise, and body weight are all associated with increased weight control. Um, the better technology you have, the more accurate your monitoring is, the more compliant you'll be. And this creates accountability. It will help you identify barriers to what, what go, what's going on if for some reason you aren't hitting your, your behavior goals, your habit goals. If you have a record of that, you have a better chance at understanding what's going, what's derailing you in the process. Um, and also, you can see progress, and that's that is in and of itself a psychological reward. So um, the next meta habit is mindfulness, and I'm going to spend a bit of time on this because I think it's incredibly important. Um, mindfulness is so. So we're already all running on habits, right? And if you feel like you're not healthy enough, it's because a lot of those habits are not healthy. And the hard part about breaking habits is that you're already on autopilot, right? Like you're just going through your day, and the next thing you know, you're at the drive-thru. Or you're just going through your day, and you've been on Facebook. Oh, I was going to go to the gym, and I, you know, I didn't do it because I was on my habit route on these other, this other track. So... The way to sort of break yourself out of that zombie place we all end up during the week and when we're trying to do the right thing but fail, uh, mindfulness is really the key because mindfulness is what enables you to pause, realize what you're actually doing, check in to see if it's what you want to be doing, and then redirect if necessary. So just to tell you, just to explain, this is what I feel like mindfulness is, and I think this is the most, for me, this definition is the most useful specifically for forming healthy habits. So um, mindfulness is paying attention to a single thing in the present moment, and this is important, without judging without judgment or trying to act on it, without trying to change anything. So you can attend, with your, focus your attention on either a physical experience, like your breath, um, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, or on your mental experiences. And that is basically your thoughts or your emotions. So there's three realms. What's going on and what your senses are taking in and what you're thinking and what you're feeling. And your job, when you're trying to be mindful, is to just accept it. Accept reality as it is in the present moment and resist the urge to judge it. 
Because we all, that's like usually the first place your mind goes. Like, well, that's happening. Well, that's bad. That should not be happening. Um, and, and it's important that you are able to catch yourself from doing that because that's how you're going to be able to sort of reclaim the reins on your motivation and do and change course. And importantly, mindfulness is a practice. Uh, there is no goal. It's really hard to do. Like you probably have all experienced sort of like losing 30 minutes on the internet on down some rabbit hole without really knowing what's going on. And the, the hard part, right, is like, like where did that time go? It just disappeared in the thin air. And that is a perfect example of what your brain does when you're in a habit. And breaking out of it, um, it, it just requires practice. That's it. So when you're trying to be mindful, when you have whatever mindful practice you have, there is no goal. Benefits will emerge, but they don't. You don't. You can't succeed at a meditation session or fail at a meditation session. You can't succeed at mindful eating or fail at mindful eating. You just practice, and don't judge. You're failing or succeeding. <laughs> okay. So specific to mindful eating. Um, there's actually been a, a good number of studies, and it. it's one of the most promising areas for uh, getting better habits of your eating and controlling your weight. Um, so basically, it's been shown that if you, when you direct attention to the properties of the food, so the sensory perception, the crunchiness, the flavors, the, the seasonings, that you enjoy it more. Who knew? <laughs> you can enjoy it more. Um, whereas, you know, if you're eating, even if it's something you love, if you're eating in front of the TV and mindfully, mindlessly shoving it in, you're not actually really experiencing it. You're not really enjoying it. Also, directing your attention, your, being mindful about your body while you're eating, your satiety, can also help you stop eating when you're actually already full. It's so easy. Have, have you ever eaten past being full? It happens. It's pretty easy to do. Um, and mindfulness can help with that. And this one, this one is important. Mindfulness can actually help you be less impulsive and make more value-based decisions. So again, that's sort of what I was getting at earlier and why this is so important is it gives you that pause that you need to just stop and say, hey, do I really want to go through the drive-thru one more time? Do I really want to heat up that frozen dinner one more time? I really want to go downstairs and get pizza right now <laughs> um, and realize that it's actually not that hard to scramble some eggs or, or cut up some veggies and make a stir fry. And actually, 86% of mindful-based interventions help with changing eating behaviors. So actually, something that actually works. So some quick tips on mindful eating. Um, Things you want to do is you want to focus on chewing. I don't have time to go into the, the big depth of this right now, but um, chewing is a big one. So it's part of eating that we tend to not think about. And like I said, you, you'd be shocked how little people chew. I mean, now that I'm aware of myself, and by the way, I'm also, you also get influenced by people around you. Like if everybody around you is eating really fast, like you start like eating really fast. It's really freaks me out sometimes what, what a powerful trigger that is. But um, just focus a little bit on chewing. Make sure your ch food is chewed. Put down your fork between bites. This sort of helps you learn to chew. Um, if, you're, if your next bite is waiting on your fork and there's still food in your mouth, it's a strong tw trigger to swallow, even if the food isn't chewed already. Remove distractions. So the more that's going on, the less you're mindful. So TV, uh, loud 
anything. Sit at a table, you know, focus on your food. Um, use a plate. <laughs> Don't eat out of the bag or the box standing in your kitchen. Sounds like some people have been there. Um, all these things help you be a more mindful eater and a less of a mindless eater. Um, mindful eating is actually really tricky. And like I said, I'm into this stuff. I have super strong willpower, and it took me years to actually develop a mindful eating habit. Um, and But it's really powerful, and I love it. And to help people with this, I actually created a free program. So if you're interested in mindful eating, just a... I created a free five-day video course. It's, it's called the Mindful Meal Challenge. And um, if you're interested, you can sign up there. Um, the, it starts every Monday. So you, you would all be in the same cohort if you started, if you signed up tonight. And I, I think this approach is far more effective than anything else I've ever seen. I've read so many books on mindful eating. And what I found is that I was always vaguely trying to eat mindfully. Like, yeah, I eat mindfully. And then you sit down and you get a text and you're like, and the next thing you know, your food's gone, and you didn't really chew, and you have a stomach ache because you ate your salad without chewing, and that hurts. And um, <clears throat> so what I realized is that what I need is, when I developed a meditation practice, I realized that I needed a similar thing for food. So rather than trying to eat every me- meal perfectly mindfully, I set aside one meal a day to have a mindful meal. And then I'm super serious about it. And no matter how distracted I am that day or no matter how frustrated, if I just you know, get my phone away, turn everything off, turn off the books, sit down by myself in a quiet room and enjoy my meal, I get that practice. And then when I am at a social event or in a hurry or whatever, at a traveling at the airport or something, I actually am more mindful in that moment simply because I practiced it when it was easy. So practice when it's easy. And that way you have a fighting chance when it's hard. Because if you're trying to do it all the time, it's always hard. Um, and mindfulness can also be used to deal with, uh, cravings, which is something that I know a lot of people struggle with, especially if you have been a dieter and, or, and have developed a binge eating habit, or if you're just a binge eater, um, urge surfing was actually developed to help smokers. And it's very counterintuitive. It teaches you to, because what most people try to do is when there's something, a behavior you don't want to do. You don't want to eat the chocolate. You don't want to smoke the cigarette. You don't want to drink the thing. You don't want to gamble. Your your impulse, or I think your gut reaction is to say, I'm going to ignore it. You know, you try to create distractions for yourself. And that can sometimes be effective. But more often than not, it doesn't make, it makes the craving stronger. Um, because trying to suppress something, your brain doesn't like, doesn't, your brain doesn't do that very well. Whenever you try to suppress something, there's part of your brain going, am I suppressing it? Am I suppressing it? Am I suppressing it? And, and then it's like, oh shoot, I'm not. (laughs) So, um, it's actually, um, that you take the counter approach, which is to be very mindful about the craving. So, so you don't try to suppress or ignore the feeling and, um, But you can take comfort in knowing that cravings tend to be temporary. They rarely last more than 30 minutes. So the idea is that you mentally surf through the buildup, the the crest, the hard part of the craving, and then the fall. And you just sort of try to observe it impassively and not do anything about it. And this has actually been shown to be really effective at reducing 
binges and cigarette smoking. If any of you happen to be a smoker. So, um, this is all still habit forming. I mean, that's sort of the, the basics, but habit forming is still really more of an art than a science. And I'm going to use uh, BJ Fogg's behavioral model to explain why that is a little bit. So, uh, a professor at Stanford had came up with this model of th- like, when will you do stuff? And when will you not do stuff? Like, we, we all have this ha- problem, right? Like, I want to form a habit, but I don't. Like, why don't I? And why do I have bad habits? Why, why do, why, and why can't I stop those? So and what he says is that the harder... So your motivation and how difficult it is to do the thing need to be... Are, in opposition. So if it's really hard to do, you have to be super, 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 super motivated to get it done. Whereas if it's super easy to do, it doesn't really matter how motivated you are because it's sort of no sweat. So you, you can do it and it's not so, not so bad. And this is really powerful. And he uses this to argue that the most important thing when you're trying to form a habit, start with the smallest, easiest possible thing you can do. Because the goal is to actually start the habit. Once you have the habit, you can always change the action in the middle. But you want to start the cue, you want the cue and the reward to be paired. So you want to, that's the most important aspect. So once you can get that cue and reward paired up by doing something super easy, then, you know, let's say you just walk into the gym. Or even not even that, just put on your running shoes. The easiest possible thing you can do. Uh, For tooth flossing, just floss one tooth. Um, You can always add. You can always floss two teeth if you feel like it. It's fine. But you only commit to the smallest habit. And this is actually very effective for building habits. But there's one thing that I wanted to point out as well. And that is that the like how hard something is and how motivated you are to do it, those are actually subjective. You know, things appear to be hard, especially if you've never done it before. Whereas if you do something all the time, it appears easy. So habits are actually a a way to game this chart a little bit because habits, they, as you build them, they get by nature, get easier to do. The same exact action just gets easier to do, and it gets more rewarding because you start building up the benefits, and you start it starts becoming comforting because routines and habits are comforting. So, for instance, if you have the habit of stopping at a drive-through every night or heating up a frozen dinner every night, and you would really love to start cooking fresh vegetables at 6 p.m. when you're hungry, that sounds really hard, right? Like that sounds really hard, but and that was me, by the way, in grad school. The, but what happens is, is, you know, fast forward 10 years later, now, when I think about dinner, I have a fridge full of vegetables. I'm really good at cooking. I taste, I know what I like. It's amazing. It makes me feel good when I eat it because eating healthy food makes you feel better afterward. And when I'm thinking about dinner, I'm like, well, we could, you know, we could try to get a reservation somewhere, but then I have to put makeup on and shower and... You go on an Uber and that's expensive. And like it's now going out sounds harder. And just just because it's my habit. Even though, you know, in somebody who isn't me with different habits in the exact same position would say the exact opposite thing. So that is how you can... That is how, why habits are so powerful because they can make this stuff on this chart move around. 
So um, that just touched on something that I call cognitive uh, illusions and limiting beliefs in that the perceived difficulty and the perceived reward can change. And so what you can do is you can create conditions to lower the perceived difficulty or increase the perceived reward. Um, And no matter what, you need triggers, though. Don't forget about the triggers, because no matter how easy and motivated you are, if you forget about it, it's not going to happen. So just a few um, quick examples of this. So anybody ever, anybody here a perfectionist? How often does that kick you in the pants more than it helps you? Um, it, It can be paralyzing. And so, but this is, again, it's a framing thing in your mind. So um, perfectionism can preempt positive action. It can stop you from doing anything when really you just need to be doing the minimalist thing, the tiny thing. Um, And again, with habits, rewards scale up with time and difficulty scales down. So that's another way. And um, so you want to start with a tiny habit rather than trying to be perfect. So if you, cu- if you set out to say, I'm going to work out five days a week, I'm going to run three miles, I'm going to lift all the weights, and I'm going to be buff uh, by summertime, that's very likely to fail if you do nothing right now. Whereas, like I said, putting on your shoes and just walking into the gym and seeing if you feel like anything, and if you don't, it's fine. You can go home, but you probably won't. Uh, and maybe some days you'll just feel like walking on the treadmill, and then maybe you'll do that for a week, and maybe one day you'll have a little more energy and you'll feel like running. It happens. And there will be days where you feel less, and you can go home, and you don't have to feel bad about it. So start with a tiny habit and work your way up. And, and in, in these cases, consistency is more important than intensity. So focus there. Um, another example is the convenience illusion. And I, I sort of described this a little bit already, so I'll go through it quickly. But habits... Um, so again, back to the Facebook or Internet example. You get on the Internet, and you have... Um, 30 minutes can go by like that, right? Like you have no idea where that time went because you're in a habit. Whereas 30 minutes of learning to crochet or sitting in traffic or doing something new and hard cooking, if you've never cooked before, I mean, that feels like an eternity. So one thing to keep in mind, reminding yourself is that Sometimes you think that you don't have time to do things, but that's, it's not necessarily true. You feel like you don't have time because it sounds hard, but, you know, going, for instance, I can cook dinner in 30 minutes, and going through the drive-thru is about the same amount of time. But it doesn't feel that way if it feels like it's more energy for you and it's harder, but the time itself is actually the same. So there's something in psychology called the oddball effect, which is that anything new that you're doing feels like it takes longer. So the the task that they demonstrate this on is they show pictures of like boring things and then they show a picture of like a swimsuit model and then they go back to the boring things. And when you ask people how long each picture was on the screen, they always say the swimsuit model was on like way longer. But they were all in there the same amount of time. I don't do this anymore. I used to show you. <laughs> it's not appropriate. Um, but they're all on there for the same amount of time. But something, anything novel that attracts your attention feels like it takes more time. So keep in mind that whenever you're trying to start a new habit, it's going to feel at the beginning like it takes longer. But it's not necessarily true. That's in your mind. And... Um, So these two things together make a huge contrast between changing your behavior. Um, 
so if you're like the habit thing is going to be so fast, what I already do is so fast and so easy and so familiar. And this new thing is going to take forever in your mind. That's a massive contrast, but the reality is it's not that big of a deal. So this is an example of a, I call them cognitive illusions or a limiting belief that will prevent you from doing something that you can, you're totally capable of doing. <clears throat> but this is where you need willpower. You need willpower to remember, actually, Daria's right. <laughs> this is a, it's just, it just seems hard because I don't normally cook dinner, but it, I can do it. And um, it's going to take a, a little bit of willpower at first. But if you get your triggers right and you get your rewards right, eventually it'll feel even easier than what you were doing before. And you'll like it better because you'll be living in line with your values. So one more of these um, ways you can change how you impact the perceived difficulty or motivations as with the language that you use. We perceive experiences differently depending on how they are described. So um, I love Brian Wansing's work. I don't, I don't know if you guys are familiar with him, but he, he wrote a wonderful book called Why We Eat More Than We Think. <laughs> um, it's true in many ways. Um, but he says that you, you taste what you expect to taste. You can present the same exact food or beverage to someone with a different label on it. And if it says healthy or soy or fiber or what's another horrible word? <laughs> um, natural? I don't know. If it says any of those words on it, you will rate it as tasting worse and having fewer calories than it actually has or is. And if that exact same food is described as indulgence, um, luscious, uh, chocolatey, then it will, you will perceive it as more satisfying and tastier. The exact same food. And this has been shown time and time again. And every single, this guy, he creates these amazing labs where he tricks people into thinking things. And he's just shown it in so many different ways. And um, it's pretty powerful, the power of the words and expectations that you create with them. So again, 90% of people have negative associations with the word healthy. So stop trying to eat healthy. Eat foods you love. And try to make some of those vegetables and real foods and try to make fewer of them processed foods. It's really that simple. And by the way, again, I'm one of those 10%. I, when I see healthy, I just think t things taste amazing. <laughs> um, and, and then the, the experience, the, he calls it the health halo, which is that they um, taste worse and are less satisfying. So people will, what, what, and what happens as you go and you eat the Subway sandwich or whatever, thinking it's healthy. You underestimate the amount of calories in it. You feel good about yourself for torturing yourself with that healthy sandwich. And then maybe you get a cookie afterwards or reward yourself. So you end up eating, you end up making worse decisions later because of your, the way you lied to yourself about how unhealthy or unsatisfying your healthy food is. So that whole framing that this is healthy and this is not, and I should eat this and I shouldn't eat that, like that whole thing is really undermining your efforts. And it's far better to focus positively on things you enjoy that happen to be real foods. And, and being very simple with that. If it's a real food, it's fine. Like it's okay if it's a carb. <laughs> it's okay if it's fat. As long as it's a real food, you're in the right ballpark. So uh, you can use the same language to reframe. So rather than using the word healthy, try to describe foods as tasty or easy. Uh, he, I call it seasoning with words. So you can 
um, you can actually make food sound more appealing by evoking different feelings around it. So uh, like nostalgia, like grandma's famous spaghetti or, um, or, or, uh, from a specific geographical location. Like this is a Parisian baguette, not just a regular baguette. Um, people, uh, you can emphasize the cooking method. If something is, uh, gently roasted, it might be more appealing than if it's just fish. Um, vivid sensory images. So a ripe tomato tastes better than a tomato. Um, a, a spring carrot tastes better than a regular old carrot. Um, and anything that makes it sound special in any way. And never lecture anybody. Because <laughs> it has the exact opposite effect that you want. Like if you want somebody else in your family to eat healthy, the worst thing you can do is tell them that they're doing it wrong and being bad. Because then they're going to believe that and they're going to go to do the thing they really want to do later. And then they're going to overdo it on that. So it really backfires when you create this dichotomy between things that are good for you and bad for you. And, and then it's even worse when you push it on someone else. So limiting beliefs. Um, limiting beliefs are uh, irrational beliefs about your own ability or identity that prevents you from taking a positive action. So a few examples. I'm a terrible cook. I hate running on the dread mill. I'm big boned. I can never lose weight. None of these things are actually true, right? You're not just a terrible cook. You haven't learned to cook. You know, who would like running on a treadmill? <laughs> you, you know, maybe you like jogging in the park. Um, and anybody can be healthy, no matter how big your bones are. So um, I encourage you to focus. If you have a negative story about why you can't do something and why you can't have success in changing your behaviors, question whether or not that's actually true. And what kind of stories can you tell? Um, so, and this is particularly useful, by the way. Um, I know a lot of people, sometimes the hardest part about eating healthy is accommodating everybody else in your household or at the office. So this is, if, if that rings a bell, this, this is for you. Um, so if you're trying to get your kids or your husband or your wife to change the way they eat, um, focus on uh, foods, you know, make the food sound special. Like, don't just say, hey, guys, we're having salad tonight. Like nobody wants to hear that. You know, talk about why you picked these particular ingredients. What's special about them? Um, tell me about the farmer. Tell me about the recipe you found. Um, who, why did it look so good to you? Why did you choose it? This will increase the perceived reward of even healthy food. Success stories are also very powerful. Um, this is why quacks use them on their websites. Because um, success stories, you, you think, if that person can do it, then I can do it. So it decreases the perceived difficulty of the task ahead of you. Um, they're very motivating and empowering, so they raise the motivation. Um, and I would like to remind you that not all success stories are about weight loss. So uh, I like to emphasize on, uh, with my readers, I like to always emphasize um, somebody who just learns to love to cook. You know, that's a big win. Or somebody who was a picky eater who learned to love vegetables. Like, that's a success. Um, or, you know, somebody who got their, you know, somehow managed to get all their kids loving Brussels sprouts. You know, that's, that's a success story, too. So you can find these stories anywhere. They don't necessarily have to be about your weight. And the most powerful one of all is actually your values. So uh, value-based motivations are far and away the most motivating for people. And... Um, 
there were, one of the studies that showed this was there was a, a class, I think it was at Stanford, um, called Food and Society. And they did a study comparing the kids in that class to the kids in a health class that were actually learning about nutrition. And, but in the Food and Society class, they learned about animal welfare. They learned about the environment. They learned about all the different impacts the food chain has on the world outside bigger than yourself. And at the end of the study, the... Like months later, the the kids actually in the in the food and society class were making far better, more healthy food choices. Actually, the kids that took the nutrition class were eating slightly worse. <laughs> um, it wasn't statistically significant, but it wasn't. It definitely wasn't better. <clears throat> and um, and so you can reframe. Like when you really connect to a value with some your food, when you can reframe it as um, you know that's just not me. Like I don't eat like that. I don't eat things like that, or it's not worth it to me. I mean, think about it. Vegetarians don't cheat on their diets. Why? Are they using willpower all day? No, they believe something. They be- they ha- there's a value there. So when you can tie into something bigger, it makes it a lot easier. Like, I don't eat industrial meat anymore after learning about things like this. It, I just, I'd rather eat less meat and spend more money on higher quality meat. It's very, very powerful. And so values can shift your time and money and effort priorities very strongly. So don't diet. Instead, use willpower to rescript habits by identifying the triggers and rewards and scripting new actions. Set clear goals and monitor yourself for compliance and effectiveness. Practice mindfulness. Identify and break those limiting beliefs that make healthy behavior seem harder than it actually is. Use words and stories to reframe healthy behaviors as fun and enjoyable and unhealthy ones as gross, unethical, or not worth it. And take some time to learn about the social, environmental, environmental and economic values around food and the food system that we have. Thanks, guys. So remember the look-ahead study that I talked about? All of those subjects were diabetic. The people who entered that study who did not show any mortality reduction over the course of the 10 years that they were on a diet, they were diabetic. But there are a number of studies that show that diabetics who get more exercise have better blood sugar control and that diabetics who eat healthier food, who eat more vegetables, that those are also things that they teach you. They, people frame it as weight loss, but what they're, what they're teaching you is to do healthy habits, and they tell you that that should lead to weight loss. The problem is that the healthy habits are the goal in their own right, and when people do them and they don't lose weight or they don't lose as much weight as they wanted to, they stop. You know, it might have been working to keep you from dying, but oh, I didn't, I didn't lose two dress sizes, so I'm not going to do that anymore is not the right lesson to take. Okay, so where, where does the set point or the defended range come from? <clears throat> Clearly part of it is genetic. You probably look a lot like the rest of your family in terms of how you're built. And then there's a variety of environmental effects. For instance, uh, children who don't get enough sleep tend to grow up into heavier adults than children who do get enough sleep. 
childhood neglect and abuse are associated with future adult weight gain. Stress is associated with weight gain. It seems to some extent as though your body simply says, "Eh, this weight seems to be working out okay for me. I've been this way for a while. Nothing bad has happened. Maybe we should just inch the set point up here a little bit. Uh, so it's, it's a combination of your genetics and your environmental experiences. But uh, in general, once they get where they happen to be at the moment, they're quite hard to shift. That's the main thing. Why do people gain weight as they get older, and does that have anything to do with the set point? I think for most people, that is the process I just described, that we, we live in a culture and a society where... Most of us eat a little more than we actually are hungry for. And gradually, as you do that, you gain a little weight. And then your body gets used to that and considers it the new normal. And then from there, maybe you gain a little more weight. Or maybe it happens suddenly. Maybe you got pregnant. You never lost all of the weight from getting pregnant. Or maybe you went through a really stressful period in your job and you lost some weight and you gained some weight and you never never lost it again. But in most cases, it's, it's a result of living in a very, what they call, obesogenic environment. It did not used to be true. Like in 1900, it was not true that adults were way heavier than younger people. Um, that that's a function of our modern environment. There is a there is a hormonal factor as well. Um, when as as you age, both men and women lose testosterone, and testosterone is responsible for maintaining muscle mass, which is a huge part of where your metabolism expends energy is your, through your muscles. So there is a factor there, and, and older people, in order to maintain their muscle mass, do actually need to eat more protein. It's been shown. Protein to maintain that muscle mass and, and, and do strength training. It's actually very important. So she asked, um, how does the role of fitting on a, sitting, getting on a scale help you or hurt you in terms of getting you in the right headspace to make progress in your healthy habits. Um, It can be really hard. So if you are the type of person who grew up to believe that your self-worth is very strongly linked to that number on the scale, it can be devastating to get on the scale. And I've seen it many times. And, you know, in that case, there's like a whole bunch of personal work that needs to be done like with a therapist or, or something like that, um, it's it's not funny. It's it's uh, it's a big deal. Um, in, in order to break that association of your body being the same as your value, um, and but that said, um, like I said, monitoring and data collection of your progress is actually very motivating for some people. So if you aren't, so the scale is a very special thing. Um, if you're the type of person who doesn't care and you can look at it as a data point, then you're fine. You can get on the scale every day. It's super informative. But some people have to work through some stuff before they can do that regularly. So you, you have to sort of know yourself. And, and it's actually not obligatory to get on the scale at all. Right. If that's, if that's demotivating to you, if it makes you feel bad, um, I don't have any idea what I weigh, and I haven't for years. But I know how my clothes fit, 
and I know what my body looks like, and that's basically enough monitoring to suit my personal needs. So you, you really just have to know yourself and know what works for you. Okay, so if you change your habits and do all the right things, will your body eventually adjust and allow your set point to come down? Uh, the short answer is probably not. That you may... Hey, look, I didn't design the system. Don't blame me. I'm just the messenger. But fun fundamentally, you, you may discover that your defended range isn't where you thought it was, especially for people who have been binge eating or otherwise really pushing past their... What their body is telling them about what they want, some people do pleasantly discover that they actually are naturally a lot thinner than they thought they were. But you're, I wouldn't recommend that anybody go into it on the assumption that that's going to be the way it comes out. Both because for a lot of people, your set point's going to turn out to be exactly the body you're sitting in here today. And also because it's virtually impossible to learn mindful eating if you go into it with the preconception of this is how it's going to be. If I eat mindfully, I will eat less is a recipe for not eating mindfully because it doesn't allow you to get in touch with the actual data of what your body is feeling. So you, you have to be comfortable with letting it come out the way it comes out or you're not, you're, you're going to do exactly the thing I described a minute ago. You're going to say, oh, this isn't working. I need another fad. And just quit. The mindfulness is more about, so if you just let go of the thought of weight and you just focus on, no matter what, if you want to lose the weight, you may or you may not, but no matter what, you need to change those habits. So the, the mindfulness is about refocusing on just the behaviors that may or may not get you there but will definitely make you feel better and definitely make you healthier and I promise you'll never want to go back because being healthy feels so good <laughs> so. the question is about uh, whether the comment that I made about whether normal overweight and obese ranges are in the right place and whether anybody is talking about moving them so the, the first thing I want to say is that uh, about half of the young women who go on diets are in the normal weight range to start with. I was, and I bet you were too. Very normal. So um, there's, something, there's something in our culture, apart from calling people overweight, that is triggering people to, uh, to try to lose weight. The second thing is that actually these ranges did get changed. They... Uh, they got changed about 20 years ago, um, lowered. And used to be, I might not remember the exact number, I think it was uh, a BMI of 28.5 was the top of the normal weight range, and now 25 is the top of the normal weight range. And that change was not associated, as it turns out, with any real... Uh, different medical data than what we have today, it was 
associated with a cultural change in the value of thinness and quite a bit of political pressure from the diet industry. So more than 30 million Americans became overweight overnight when that change was made. And most of those people are very unlikely to be in any medical danger from their weight. Okay, well, thank you, everyone, for coming to the Mini Medical School this year. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.